Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and it is the 1st of November, 2012, and our special guest tonight is Yale Wishnick. Yale, thanks so much for being here. Yale, are you there? Yes, I'm here now. Uh, we had lost okay. you for a few seconds there. <laughs> oh, good. Okay, the Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Thanks to Mighty Bell and Blackboard Collaborate for support. I am on the Hack Your Education tour. This week was canceled because of the hurricane, but I will be in Philadelphia next weekend. It should be a lot of fun. Um, very much related to what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, the recordings are up for the Learning 2.0 and the Library 2.012 virtual conferences. Uh, they're uh, at those web addresses there. And coming up in just over a week is the Global Education Conference. Five days, 24 hours a day, over 375 sessions. It should be a blast. It is all free. Go to globaleducationconference.com and please do join us. And Karen says no sound, but I'm hoping that that's not the case anymore. Coming up on the future of education next week, I'm not sure this is going to happen, but we did have scheduled a flipping the classroom session. Uh, I do know for sure that on the 8th, uh, we're going to be talking about global competence uh, with Tony Jackson and Veronica, um, both uh, as part of an Asia Society um, series of webinars that we'll go on through this year. Then on November 12th to 16th is the Global Education Conference. Uh, and you can see the schedule there. New on the schedule is Jim Groom. Should be a lot of fun. He's, we're going to talk to him about his program, The Domain of One's Own. Cal Newport had to reschedule because of Hurricane Sandy. And he's now on December 13th. If you've missed any of the shows, they are all recorded in full Blackboard Collaborate form and in MP3. Jamie McMillan talked to us about legendary learning. That was really interesting. Uh, fun to hear a homeschool perspective, and especially fun to hear someone who's done some detailed research on people who succeeded with non-traditional educations. Many very famous people and the lessons there. I'm hearing a little squeaking. Yale, are you still with us? I'm still with you, but I, I lose you off and on. Interesting. So this is the chance for those of you who are participating to let us know where you're joining us from. Look for the icons on the left of the map. And you want to click on the star icon, the second one down. And then put a note in the chat, if you would. Let us know time and temperature. I'm in Park City, Utah, where we have seen that almost foot of snow melt away and back up into the 60s today. And Yale, how much are you hearing from me? Still there? Yes. So one thing I can do, Yale, is I could actually call you by phone while you're in the system. Have you been losing me off and on during the intro? Yeah, I have. I have been off and on. So if that happens again, please let me know. And then maybe I will call you by telephone. Hopefully we've we've overcome that okay. issue. Is anybody else in the room I'm only hearing you partially? Lost you again. Yeah, lost 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 you again, Steve. Interesting. Okay. When you're not talking, try turning off the talk button. Try turning that off now and see what happens. Okay. So I'm now talking, you know, and I'm wondering if it's any better or if you still end up losing me. To, to speak back to me, you're going to need to talk, turn the talk button back on. So let's have you try that now. Turn the talk button back on. Yeah, I hear a squeal every so often. Can you hear me? I can. Let's do this. Let's yeah. have you turn your talk button off. I'm going to call you by phone. I promise that after the interview, we will get your audio working better. 
I just don't want to spend your time or the audience's time now fixing that. Right. And but I'm going to call you by phone. But you can keep the screen up so you okay, can still see everything on the screen. But just be sure to turn your talk button off. Great. Here we go. I will. Okay. Bye bye. Yes, Dale, I am. are you there? I am. Dale, are you there? Okay, terrific. <laughs> We've overcome a technical challenge. Yes. I know. Am I on speaker? Uh, no, you're not. Okay, terrific. So I think we're in good shape. Okay, we're going to move right ahead here. So there is a Mighty Bell space for this session. I'll put the link on the uh, whiteboard. This is a content and curation service created by Gina Bianchini. Lots of fun and a good way to collect information about a topic. Please do join us. I put some of Yale's websites and work up there. Okay, so uh, yeah, I found this book absolutely riveting. Um, I've probably marked 30 pages in significant ways and have notes written all over it. And I want to start by making mention of something I've noticed in the last year. And that is that the discussions around um, politics and individual self-initiative and the lack of substantive discussion in a lot of public spheres seems to have transcended traditional political boundaries. I'm just as likely to read an article in a liberal, um, from a liberal source about concerns about the government and lobbying and decision making as I am to read it in a conservative, at a conservative site. And it feels like there's something really deeply important going on right now that transcends political boundaries. Have you felt that the, the reception to your book has also been um, nonpartisan in that in, way? In some ways it has. Um, that's an interesting observation uh, because you're absolutely right. Uh, I, I do believe embedded in a lot of political conversation, economic conversation, um, is, is some basic patterns and some themes now that are starting to surface. However, it really does require some uh, confidence and faith, I believe, on um, both sides of the aisle, so to speak, um, to, to keep taking a look at it. Because there's, uh, I, I do have colleagues that um, have absolutely responded the way you've just suggested. But then at the same time, I have some very close friends who uh, have not. And I think there's some real apprehension that, um, particularly on the progressive side, that they may be taken in. Um, that unless they keep their guard um, for their, their basic values, uh, they're going to be somehow marginalized or eroded by some thinking that attempts to uh, so show some, some connection between the various uh, political extremes on both sides. Uh, and, I, and I mean extremes in the sense of not a negative term, because I believe both the, both, uh, by the people who have some very solid and strong positions are principle-directed. So um, I, I think that what you're suggesting is there, but, but it's been more often still um, I've seen some some real difficulty in penetrating um, thoughts that would try to take a look at some underlying themes as opposed to holding on to some basic traditional values. I think what's going to be interesting here is to bridge between a number of conversations we've had on this show related to what's called strengths-based education to your proposal around strength-based education. And I think the two are actually uh, not only aligned, but sort of intimately tied. But I don't think necessarily that people who talk about uh, helping students develop their own individual strengths 
are necessarily thinking at this deeper level about a dependency culture and about the uh, importance of freedom and individuals. So I hope that we can make that tie tonight. Um, so tell us what you mean by deficit thinking. Well, uh, deficit thinking is, is pervasive. That's the first thing. Um, while our focus is certainly on education and ed education being a centerpiece, um, deficit thinking exists throughout society and obviously because the schools are, are there to uh, help kids prepare for adulthood, they're going to have it. But deficit thinking is when you have a particular problem um, that may be um, a continual problem and you begin to uh, identify with it as part of your essence, your, who you are. In other words, um, I may have, uh, uh, if, if I'm in, uh, playing baseball, um, I may have a problem hitting a curve, but I don't see myself as uh, identifying as my essence, who I am with hitting that curve. On the other hand, when we start thinking in terms of deficit thinking, um, what's happening, I believe, more and more today is um, uh, intractable problems start becoming more and more identified with um, the individual. And if we, if we focus uh, specifically on the schools, particularly kids um, that are in uh, high poverty areas or schools that are having a lot more challenges, we are now, I believe, um, through various policies at all levels beginning to really not see those kids as individuals, but rather as deficits that we must respond to, that we have a, that we need to take care of, or in some fashion that we need to have some special initiatives to deal with their problems. And as a result of that, um, at least the way my book and, and the thoughts that I'm attempting to present, is that not only are we not really um, helping these kids but rather we're creating a dependency state because uh, I believe once you begin to uh, uh, identify individuals as their problems, then um, really solutions become very limited and narrow. I think what part of what I found so intriguing in the book is that there are many people who would agree with what you've just described. And, uh, and certainly it's been a part of the strengths-based discussions that we've had here. But you make a pretty direct connection between seeing the deficits of individual students and a larger um, culture of dependency. Um, and, in, and in some ways, there's kind of this catch-22 of, um, and, and I'm, these are my words, not yours, and I hope you'll correct me, but, but my sense is that a lot of the students are coming out of schools feeling like they're not smart enough let's say the, the great majority of them. And so they're not comfortable speaking up about significant issues that actually impact then the perceptions and narratives around schools and, and what, the, what purposes they serve. And so kind of feeds into a cycle of dependency. So clarify in your own words if I've gotten even close. No, no I, I think you're close, but I think we also have to, when we start talking about uh, students, we also have to place teachers in there. Um, the reality is is that um, when state governments, when the federal government begins to categorize various schools, the condition of, um, of, of kids in certain schools around the country, those categories take on a lot more than just symbolism. Um, and the, the teachers, the administrators, parents, uh, community, even the politicians in the general area all begin to see students and the school in deficit terms. And the thing about it is, is that the irony to this is, is that as those, as, 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 as whether it's teachers or kids or the school itself is, is viewed as a deficit, we then feel more and more obligated to respond. Uh, good people want to help. But the difficulty is when you are viewing individuals in a deficit perspective, that help really is counterproductive. Um, only because the only way I believe that uh, we really can get some, we see change is when either the student or the teacher or both in some combination begin to realize that there's the solutions to the overcoming their challenges really lie with them. 
uh, and to your greater point about the schools, um, this book was developed after five years of work, uh, two and a half years where uh, we were with the Gates Foundation and seven of California's highest poverty, lowest performing schools where we learned a number of things about why strength-based thinking and deficit thinking are, are critical to any kind of school change that's authentic. But then also looking, I spent a couple of years looking at the founding of the country, of our country, in terms of, of were we, going back to a question of were we always a deficit-based country or were we in fact at one time a strength-based country and what happened? And um, I believe that uh, there was some dramatic shifts in thinking and as a result of that our schools, uh, especially with um, over the last 30 years when you take a look at um, changes in, in attitudes towards schools and the responsibility society has, instead of looking at schools from a strength-based perspective, more and more the deficit model has become entrenched to the point now we're like a fish in the, in the tank in the water. You, we don't even know we're there at this point. And when you and when you begin to talk in terms of deficit terms, um, you get you get some knee-jerk reactions and some um, some real defensiveness on the part of a lot of players that that I personally witnessed until I realized how how we ought to approach it, and and um, that took a lot of pain and suffering to finally get to that point. So uh, Dick Gale came on the show, and he followed you at California Teachers Association, right? I think Correct. he actually introduced the two of us. Um, and and what was intriguing to me was at the time I was very interested in um, this idea of uh, positive deviance, which is mm -hmm. something that you spent a lot of time looking at. And I, and, and I think most people would say is a very kind of progressive way of thinking about change. And it's nice that you have this background of having uh, done this kind of work uh, with schools uh, because I think your larger message that this is an environment we're swimming in that we don't even realize would be one that would kind of provoke a defensive response. And isn't that part uh, kind of, of how bureaucracies stay bureaucracies? Yeah, it is. Um, the, 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 the real focus here is it came through some very difficult times uh, that we, we approached because we, um, this, whole, this whole effort, this line of thinking, uh, was based on our work in attempting to, to improve the schools, high schools in California uh, with the Institute for Teaching. And it was based on the Gates Grant. And we spent about two and a half years. Um, we had quite a bit of money. And I had always had been of the position in my 30-some odd years of working in teacher associations and with educators that if we had sufficient funds, that's all we really needed because you really needed to have the, the opportunity for teachers, obviously, to be released, to have substitutes because they could not do it during the day. And you really can't expect someone to do it after the day. And you need to compensate folks. So we had all the money. And then we had all the expertise that could come in, and we were getting no place. And um, or there was a lot of uh, dissension and conflict. And we finally realized after a couple two and a half years, that um, we were telling teachers, um, like everyone else really in, in that's interested in improving schools with very good intentions, something's wrong with you. Um, no matter how you frame it, no matter how you say it, we learned that if you go into a school with teachers who are working their heads off to try to help kids, that we're here to help. No matter who you are, uh, you are not going to be very successful because you are approaching it from a deficit perspective. And if you take that one idea and you replicate that everywhere, you finally realize why there is so much resistance. And that's what we learned. And it was only when we discovered that we need to turn things on its head and not just come in and say, well, you all have strengths, but really, really believed it, that in fact a school which had been categorized by um, all measures as being unsuccessful had some great things going on there. And that's what you focus on. And when you do that, um, it changes everything. It's that whole adage, you get what you look for. And in this case, regardless of whether it's an appreciative inquiry, a cognitive model, or a positive deviance, a behavioral model, or whether you uh, do a paper and pencil analysis of, uh, of talents, 
uh, with teachers or students, right away you change the conditions. And I, I'm for one not so much in the area of, of, of pedagogy in terms of how we deal with strengths, but rather the, the whole approach to how we look at our educational system has to consist of a strength-based approach. And um, otherwise, you, you really are fooling people in, in the long run. You have to really come at them and, and let them know they're in charge and that they have great things going for them. And then you have to figure out ways that they can then take advantage of that to begin to establish a foundation to build from, which is, which is strength-based. Again, I'm just going to compliment you on bringing these threads together and recognize that if, you're hearing, if the audience is hearing this for the first time and I'm not doing a good job of tying this together, we'll go to Q&A and you can ask questions. But part of what you brought together for me was if, if we look at this culture of dependency, which, is, which benefits um, the, what you call profiteers and politeers, you know, uh, sort of a, a group of people who benefit from our being dependent. I think the normal dialogue would move from there towards a kind of Ayn Rand individualism. Mm -hmm. And when you make the connection to positive deviance and being supportive in that way, it feels like you, um, you avoid sort of uh, easy categorizations of um, that we would normally think of as liberal or conservative solutions. I want to describe a, a dynamic and have you tell me if you think that, um, I, I got it right. So it feels like there's an original intent. We have an outcome, a valuable outcome, and we have a choice either to institutionalize the process or to institutionalize the outcome. And the the Constitution of the United States was an institutionalization of the process, but a lot of what we see today are attempts to institutionalize outcomes. So, and, and maybe another way to distinguish those would be a focus on principles and a focus on rules or regulations. Um, and that the result of trying to institutionalize the outcome is that uh, that can often lead to the institution thriving on failure, right, in order to continue to justify its existence. And so like the prison system, or like you mentioned in the book, the diet industry, there's actually kind of a perverse incentive for people to fail. So again, your feedback, and am I close? You're very close. You're right on target, uh, um, spot on. That, that, that's a, a great assessment and uh, an analysis of it. And the the the, the thing is that um, it is destroying that which we, those that are so committed to, to doing their very best, and we, we don't realize it. Um, we're so caught up in um, doing good uh, that we don't see that we are creating this dependency state, which ultimately is going to result in the opposite of what we really are after. Um, the... Uh, but but that you know it it, it requires us to really uh, think about what it is that we are really interested in having in our schools, and you know that's that's the part that is if you ask any teacher um, uh, around and that, that that really cares about their kids and and I believe 99.9 I mean I'm not just saying that I've seen them all the time um, today especially those folks that do not care leave the system they just can't deal with it so for teachers that are for the teachers that are there um, they have to begin to start seeing what is it that we really want to do and for, for education the thing the way you've just described the, 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 the lay of the land is our teachers have become as a result uh, consumers and they are consuming everything when what they're what they really went into teaching for is to produce to, to be artists, to be scientists, to, to look at their students and figure out this, this one child in front of me has unbelievable possibility. What can I do as a teacher to create the necessary conditions for that possibility to become a reality? And that alone, if we can do that, um, not only will the teacher be so gratified, but obviously the kid's going to learn what they need to learn. 
instead of saying, well, we need to focus in on outcomes or this, that, and the other, principles have to begin to guide us. But, I'm, but that's based on, you know, this is, this is the part that's so important to me, is after I spent the time um, and had the good fortune and really the gift from the Institute for Teaching, from CTA Institute for Teaching to do this, I then spent two years, over two years, researching how we started as a country because I couldn't believe somewhere along the line that we have always been deficit-based. And the reason I could not believe it, I just don't think we could have gotten to the point we are. And so as I began to do my research and, and really spent quality time, I realized that we, have, we started as a strength-based country. Um, there is no way, when we think of the challenges that we have today, regardless of what they might be in our schools, that they can be compared to people getting into a covered wagon crossing the country. If you had a deficit-based perspective on life, you would never get out of bed, much less get into a covered wagon. And so um, the, the, the fact is that um, because we were a strength-based nation, we have that in our roots. We have that as a part of us. And that's the part that I feel we need to somehow rediscover. And I also believe strongly committed, not just because I've spent my entire adult life, but I believe teachers and educators are the one group, the one profession that can begin to make this this change, uh, and then it can be then it can be a springboard throughout both our political, economic, and social spheres. And so that's why uh, I think it's so important that teachers take a look at the culture of dependency and the culture of success and make some determination as to what what they want to do, what their craft should look like down the road, and where they what they can do to move us more towards. Uh, an independent culture of success environment for our kids. So in the conversations we've had on the show, we've talked a lot about the importance of the ultimate goal of education being to help a student become self-directed and self-aware. And that often education seems to perpetuate the dependency rather than the independence. Is that the same thing that you're talking about when you talk about strength-based? the ultimately the independence and the confidence of the individual that they can actually direct their own affairs? Yeah, that has to be part of it. It also has to be uh, um, a situation where um, within the school day, uh, we, we're, we've identified um, some factors that we think are, are critical to, um, which are in the book, which are critical um, to those kids that are that are, are really um, caught up in this culture of dependency, um, so much so that they they don't even think there's another world out there. You just can't say, well, let's just turn it on and make them self-directed. Um, and 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 teachers have to begin to see their students differently as well um, uh, in in terms of their potential and possibility uh, and be willing to realize that the most important thing, the most important thing that we can do for any student is to get them to realize they have absolute freedom to create meaning and purpose and value in their life. Um, I find it interesting, you know, the whole notion of relevancy, which is a hot topic all over the place. And uh, when we discuss it, everywhere and no matter who it is, what the policymaker might be or educator, and yet so many of our kids consider themselves irrelevant. They don't even matter. And how can you begin to start saying, you can't just walk in and start saying, well, let's start looking at strengths. You have to begin to, to, to recognize that, the, uh, that, that our students have to have, to have a sense of, of value, and that only comes through freedom. That only comes through their ability to, to exercise their, their own flexibility in terms of what they want to do and what they don't want to do. And, um, that's a, but that, that's where the art comes into teaching and the science comes into teaching. In other words, what we're looking at and what we've, what we've kind of come up with and what I've written about is it, there's no cookbook. There's no prescriptive aspect to this. It simply says you as the teacher now, your role and responsibility is no longer just to, is to follow a curriculum. But you now become artists. You have to do this. And once you begin to become a little bit better at it, and you talk, and you have conversations with colleagues, and all of those sorts of things that go on, then you'll start getting some patterns and some themes that start developing. 
and you'll enrich your own ability to learn how to do this. But this is a this is a situation where, you know, we 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 think in terms of deficits and strengths as being opposites, and they're not. Uh, the opposite of strengths is chaos and incoherence, and the opposite of deficits is chaos and incoherence. Um, it's confusion. It's disorder. And what's happening is, is with so many of our kids, particularly uh, those that are on the edge and are most vulnerable, um, they have all this confusion in their life. And what they, what we, what we have done, is we've uh, filled that with a deficit model, and they've hung on to it. They either become victims, or they play the game, or they, they know how to game it as much as they can, as opposed to taking all this disorder and this confusion in their lives, and uh, and begin to start framing it around strengths. Uh, and and I think by that kind of an approach, we have a better chance of um, of, of really bringing about some authentic changes in, in the school system. But it's not, again, it's not something I have or anyone else has. It's teachers have to begin looking at it. It's just recognizing that that deficit model, as you said initially in your comments, is pervasive. It, it's, it's, it's a solid thing, and it's hard to penetrate. So Durf makes a comment in the chat that, do this in K-12 and you'll get laid off. So I, I think the difficulty of the pervasiveness is that this isn't just a world in which students live. It's a world in which the teachers, the administrators, and the parents live in this world as well. So does it is it fair to place the burden squarely on the teachers, or does there need to be more of a combined effort? And if so, how do you even get started? Well, you know, obviously, I, you know, you, for your for your listeners and for you, you know, I, my career was uh, almost 30 years with late teacher labor unions. So I, I'm I'm not naive or foolish to think other, you know, that uh, the question um, is not a good one. It, it's an absolutely it's right on target. The difficult this is the thing though. Number and and, and, um, and we have um, I'm not sure certainly it's not all throughout the country, but in those states that have powerful, um, strong associations. Uh, tenure is an interesting example. Uh, tenure, as we all know, has been bantied about and battered all over the place now. To It's been completely transformed and, and disfigured into something that it never was originally intent. The purpose of tenure was never to protect bad teachers. The purpose, as you probably are aware, was to protect the good teacher. That's why we have tenure. That's why tenure was placed on the books if you read the original uh, legislative intent. And it was to say for that ex teacher that experimented, that was willing to take the risks. Uh, so that's the first thing, that they need to work with their teachers' associations to begin to take a look at these things. I could not be, uh, I'm still with the California Teacher Association Institute for Teaching, um, and that you spoke about Dick Gale before as the manager of it, and CTA is very much interested in the kinds of things we're talking about. But we're trying to figure out how to make it happen. Um, that's the purpose here, is to, is to get through this conversation. Uh, this book that I wrote and, and the areas that dealt with education were run through focus groups and meetings with teachers and meetings with parents before it even got to this point. And we asked them again and again, are we on the right track? Is this the way to go? Do we have traction? And in every instance, in every instance, uh, the teachers, the teachers themselves said, yes, this is the way we must go. How do we get there? We're not sure. How do we go from theory to practice? That's a good question. But this is the right way to go. So I would say at this point, before we start saying, oh, okay, I'm going to go do this, and no, I can't do it because of a million different reasons, it, it's, as I've looked at this, is let's just begin to start thinking about it. That's the key. It's not that we're going to say, tomorrow, um, I'm going to walk into my, my principal's office and I'm going to say, oh, by the way, we're no longer going to deal with uh, the standardized testing in, in my classroom. We're going to be dealing with strength-based uh, thinking and blah, 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 and yada, yada, yada. We know that that's not going to happen. On the other hand, um, if a teacher were to say to a principal, you know, I'd, I'd like to, to look at this stuff. You want to look at it with me? Uh, can I look at this with a couple colleagues? Can we bring it up at a staff meeting? And start the, the conversation. That's, that's the way we want to begin to approach this, and that's the way we're getting some traction, because administrators are scared to death either. We know there are, you know, there are administrators everywhere that would like to do different things, you know, and, and we're working with a few of them, and they are, they're, they're doing some, taking some real risks as well. So what I'm suggesting is that we begin the conversation 
at least and begin to, to see where we can start moving slow steps in this direction. So I have, uh, I have a response to that. I, um, I, I really enjoyed the book. It was an intellectual challenge. But if I'm being candid, uh, I could probably not give this book to 95% of my friends because it would be too deep a read for them. And, and we've talked on the show about how do you shift this from political decision making to more of a social movement, right? sort of a, a demand to take learning back and for parents and families and teachers to be able to have a movement. And the conclusion we've come to is that it has to be a very simple message. Is that, is that not fair to the body of work you've created? Or, or how do you move from something that's so sophisticated to a message that that um, that a wide variety of people in the system would understand and would be able to get behind quickly? Well, I, I wouldn't be candid if I hadn't said I hadn't heard that before. And um, it's, it's kind of a surprise at this point, but I understand it. And the reason I'm saying that is, is that um, um, I spent so much time uh, working in those schools uh, in California where we were directed to, you know, as I said before, to, to help teachers um, to give them the resources, and, and nothing happened. And we've all seen, I, I don't think any of your listeners or anyone really would say that, yes, we, got some, we have some great things going on, but so often it's personality driven or it's, uh, it's based on a few teachers getting together, but then they get exhausted. I mean, you can only work 24-7 for so long. And things fall apart, and we also know the system is very powerful. It snaps back. Um, I, I, I don't know what the, the answer is in terms of simplifying it, other than um, to be, just keep the conversations going. Uh, I do know that um, uh, the, the, the reality is, is that we're spending um, so much money uh, in terms of education, and um, we're just not seeing the results that we, we should. And, and because of that, I think it requires all of us to begin looking at this a little bit more uh, with, a, with a different point of view. Um, as you said earlier, there are lots of individuals out there that are taking a look at schools from a strength-based perspective. And um, uh, I am hopeful, as you are, I'm sure, that someone, you know, will say the right word, that tipping point will occur and we'll start seeing some changes. But I, 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 I think that the book that I've written is, is, is there for people to read and that they're interested in finding out, but it is not one that I necessarily say go out and read because this will change your life. But what I do say to folks, to answer your question as directly as I can, and, and I work with um, a number of teachers out in California, as well in some other places, um, uh, um, you know, just talk about what's great. We, we do an exercise that is, is about as simple as can be. And we, we do it with teachers by having them spend time talking about how great they are. And as simple as that sounds, that's a very hard thing to do. Um, in fact, we find it very difficult to do with teachers. Teachers, if you sit down and say, well, tell me about the problems you're facing, the challenges you're facing, all the things you're upset about, hey, no problem at all. But you spend time talking with teachers and you say, I want, we're going to spend the next hour talking about how great everybody is in this room. And it's like deafening. It's silence. And that's, that's the issue. Now, that's a pretty simple question. And if we can't be if we can't seriously deal with that question in such a way that um, we can have some very meaningful conversations, um, then we have our problems or our challenges are a lot worse than we think. So I'm not. I think that my book, in essence, as you, as 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 I've written it, um, was way beyond anything I originally thought. I was planning to have a small little book uh, that would kind of summarize our work work and would be very easy for teachers to follow. I hope. And then I realized this subject was a lot more complicated. Um, but I do believe that the best thing that can happen right now, if we can summarize it, is for teachers to begin looking at, number one, how great is it about teaching that you're involved with? What, are you, what is it that you really like? What is it you feel good about? 
and use that as a springboard and then the same focus with your students and begin doing that each day and asking them very simply, uh, you know, in terms of the subject matter even, what is it that's great about this subject matter? What's going on here you really like? What do you feel comfortable with? Reframing the questions in such a way so that when the kids come into the room at least, uh, they don't have to feel as if they are not going to be able to answer the questions because they can answer those questions. And that, that's how I would approach this, this topic right now. And um, as someone said to me the other day about my book, um, he said, you know, this isn't a page turner. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, i got to pick it up, put it down, pick it up, put it down. And uh, it does not read like a mystery novel, that's for sure. So Kristen Olson came on the show, and she wrote a book called Wounded by School. And one of the things that was so valuable about that discussion, based on research she'd done when she was at the Harvard School of Education, was identifying that teachers themselves are also wounded. And I guess it maybe doesn't surprise me that, that educators would have a hard time getting started that conversation about what they do well, because my guess is that they mirror or reflect the same sense of failure that a lot of students feel. I want to propose an idea and see how you respond. So in the homeschool community, there's this question of why people react so negatively to homeschooling. Right? We have uh, you know, a huge percentage of students who drop out of school or um, fall through the cracks. And it doesn't really incite strong emotions in most people. But if you have a family say they're going to homeschool their children, it typically creates quite a reaction. Is there a genetic sort of human component to conformance that plays into this deficit thinking and this um, dependency culture where um, uh, we're afraid to think of doing something different because everybody else is sort of buying into the same story? It's almost like a universal groupthink. Um. Well, I, I don't know. I, I do know that um, we have um, tied ourselves so closely to um, some ideas and thoughts and rules about the way their schools should operate. And we now have forgotten that we created all of that. I, I write uh, quite a bit in the book about David Baum, the physicist in terms of his ideas, and I think this gets to a little bit of what you're suggesting, uh, the thoughts, how thoughts are developed, and how we develop our thinking, and then how all the concepts that we, we live by. And what's happened in education is that um, we have created, uh, whether it's, we call it a bureaucracy, whether we call it um, this, this system, or this institution, whatever it might be, of rules and regulations and understandings and uh, take it for granted and procedures and practices. And uh, we act as if now that is separate and apart from us, uh, that we that somehow it's, it's there and was created uh, not by us, but by some alien force that came down and said, this is what school should look like. And we have forgotten that we created it. Uh, we're part of it. And I think the message is, is to say very clearly is that um, uh, none of this is, is the way it has to be, or ought to be, or even should be. There's no reason for any of this. Um, and there's no logical model that says it is. Uh, there's no way you can prove it is, because you can't go back and, and, and you can't prove a negative, and, you, and, and there's no way to suggest that uh, somehow what exists today in our schools is the way it should be. I, I do find, I do object to describing our schools in any way in deficit terms. I don't think it does us any good, regardless of what the source is. Um, I, I, and I, I don't see how anyone can suggest otherwise. Simply describing a problem in the greatest detail, whether you're from Harvard or any other institution of higher learning, whether you've had 35 years in education or two years, whether you're the department, uh, whether you're uh, the, uh, in charge of the Department of Education, or whether you're um, a principal. Uh, the fact of the matter is that um, you're, 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 you're simply an expert on the problem. And we don't need any more experts on the problems facing education. We need experts on solutions. Um, 
Dropout is a classic example. Uh, we have more information. We could fill we could fill up, you know, ten-story buildings with all the reports and studies on dropouts. Uh, we know everything there is to know about dropouts, but we know very little about why kids stay in school, uh, other than someone's opinion. And that's what we were learning, of course, through the Positive Deviance Project. Um, but the homeschooling thing, um, I welcome it. I think it's great. I think if parents feel really good and their kids feel really good, then we should feel really good. And what we should do is find out why they feel good. Not reject it out of hand or become defensive. I want to know why a 12-year-old child feels really good about what their mom or their dad or both are doing in terms of their education. That's the part that I want to know. And I want to know what the mom and dad think about what they're doing and find out what's really good. What is it that, that's going on in this environment? And then learn from that. And if I'm a teacher of 35 kids in my room or 30, I want to be able to use that knowledge and information with my kids. And that's the kind of information and knowledge that will help us. Um, and that's, that's, that's the approach I think we have to take. And I think it also suggests some of the reasoning why the deficit model is so deep that um, we simply think we can describe in detail and try to compete with one another as to, let me, I'll tell you how it's really bad, and then you tell me how it's worse, and then someone else will tell us how it's even worse, and we'll have more case studies and more case studies. And by the time we're finished, um, we have nothing but absolute failure as a foundation to try to build wonderful schools on. So uh, again, uh, my view on it is, is that whatever the alternative is, um, let's study it, let's find out about it, and let's make our schools better. The reality is you're not going to be able to have homeschooling, charter schools, and alternative schools, and private education in a country as vast and as diverse and as wonderful as ours is. You're going to have to have and continue to have an educational system um, that's been set up called public education. It's just a logical kind of conclusion. Therefore, um, let's try to make those schools better, not by rejecting these alternatives, but finding out why they're working, what's going on there, and then bringing that great information into the public schools. So I'm interested in how you would describe uh, the work in this book, because while you're saying it's really important not to be critical, but to move forward uh, using the, sort of the positive deviance model and building on the strength, you do in the book kind of have to explain the negatives of a dependency culture. So it feels like you do some explaining to provide context, which is critical, but then as a solution you move in positive ways. Is it, is it okay then to, to look at schools with the same kind of intent to be objective, but make sure that the solution is positive? Well, in some respects, um, we have to understand what a dependency state is. We need to be able to clearly be able to to um, describe it and, and feel knowledgeable about it so that we're able to understand what a culture of success is. Um, and I think that's, a, that's, that's critical from at least a, a serious attempt to understand the distinction from a culture of success or culture of dependency because it's such a volatile issue to begin with. And my intent to write this book was not to um, um, create more controversy, but to begin to start understanding what's taking place. Um, and so therefore, you, you, I think it is important to critically evaluate the culture of dependency, what that means, and examples, and, and, um, and how it's taking place. But at the same time, we need to begin to uh, compare that to what it would look like as a culture of success. For example, we look at education, we can start right away with compulsory education. Compulsory education, by definition, is a deficit model. It says that kids won't come to school. Therefore, we need to make a law. Now, I know that your listeners or anyone else around would say, are you nuts? I mean, you have to have it. Otherwise, they wouldn't come. And I don't know if that's the case. And even if it were the case, it's still the deficit model. 
so therefore we have to begin to, to realize that when we start talking about deficit thinking, we have to explain it. We have to understand it. Why do we have compulsory education? Why, what is it needed for? And the fact of the matter is if you have 30% dropout, is compulsory education even a useful measure anymore or useful methodology to try to get kids in school? So it's that kind of conversation that we're not having. And so that's why I think it's important to at least try to explain to people in some detailed fashion what we mean by dependency. And it is hard because in, and even since writing the book, um, realizing how 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 serious this issue is, almost it, it is is becoming so seductive, um, and it, it and the, the dependency model basically destroys initiative. It destroys us our, every every bit of our human and potential and capital to to do things great, and to say somehow that our that that our schools should move in that direction, I think, is very dangerous. The whole idea that we now say, and it's, you know, conventional wisdom is very clear out there, that, well, poverty is one of the key factors for why our kids are not doing well in school. Well, yeah, poverty exists, but that is not the reason why kids aren't doing well in school. Poverty is part of the mix. Because if we can identify kids with the same exact conditions, in other words, no real distinction, no silver spoon, and this kid is not only are they in poverty, they may not know where they're going to sleep tomorrow night, they're in an abusive home, there's violence, and yet that kid is doing extremely well in school. Why? Because there's potential there. And so therefore, to somehow suggest poverty, well, we now are dealing with poverty and we're not dealing with our children. Uh, and yet, if you if you look on the blogs and you look around now, well, poverty is the real issue and all of that. And I reject that. That is deficit model. And you can go on and on and all the other reasons. Now, back to the whole idea that the opposite of strength base is an incoherent confusion and, and, and disorder and chaos. Poverty plays a role, absolutely. But it's how we deal with that chaos um, that is the real factor and that's the real strength, uh, that, that's the real potential that teachers have to work with. And if you use it on a strength-based approach, I think things, you can be much more successful than saying somehow, well, poverty is a, real, is a reason why our kids aren't doing well in school. I don't think I'm hearing you say that poverty is not an issue. What I think I hear you saying is addressing poverty is not the solution. That's fair. That That's fair? fair. That's right. Poverty, poverty is part of the mix, just like a lot of things are part of the mix. But to somehow suggest from a, from a public policy perspective that poverty is the reason why our kids are doing, uh, why, why our kids are not doing well in urban schools is no different than um, uh, the Department of Ed or someone in California calling these schools uh, war zones. The, the fact of the matter is it does no good, I believe, to simply say poverty is the reason or poverty has some causation in terms of what's going on in our schools. That's a deficit model and it does no good because what happens at that point is, is that we simply direct our energy towards somehow fixing the deficit. And I believe that that doesn't work. I don't think there's any evidence to show that going out there and attempting to uh, fix problems in that kind of fashion is going to solve the things for our kids. Um, I think what we're talking about at this point is, is, is viewing our children from a strength-based perspective regardless of what their condition is. Now, again, that goes back to the teacher as the artist and the scientist. Of course you take everything into consideration. Not suggesting that in a non in a callous fashion that we don't, but I think it's 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 to 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 view a, a a young man or young woman in a situation that that from a dependency state that they're coming from a poverty impoverished home or from a violent home or from a home where they where they they're not sure where their parents are going to show up in a dependency state is worse. I, I don't think that that's in their interest, and I don't think it solves anything in terms of improving a lot for our kids. And I don't see any evidence to suggest otherwise. Well, if I, if I read the book correctly, the difficulty there is that identifying something like poverty as the issue to solve 
continues to place the bureaucracy at the heart of the solution. But that's clearly a nuanced topic, and uh, we're, we're right. pretty much out of time. Um, I, I, I want to let you know that I took two things away from the book that really helped me. So one was just the recognition of the dependency culture, kind of the ways in which there are incentives for politeers and profiteers to uh, promote a dependency culture for their own gain. Uh, I thought that was really helpful. And then the second was using positive deviance as a strong guide toward how you solve. Those two things really um, have made a difference for me. And again, I, I'm I want to express appreciation for the ways in which you kind of took this conversation for me across traditional mm -hmm. boundaries to think about it at a much at a much deeper level. Uh, you know, I am really curious still at this point to to think about how would you help that family, low-income inner-city family, um, regain a sense of control for that low-income student, and I feel like that's still unresolved for me. And and it's unresolved for me as well. Um, and, and I think that's a a nice way to to to, to kind of summarize this. This is an unresolved issue. Um, and it gets back to the notion of if it wasn't, then we were fixing it. In other words, we would still be viewing it as a deficit. Um, and, and that's, a, that's a, a very fine way, I believe, of looking at this, is that it's up to it's the teacher with the support of other, obviously, professionals to figure out how do we examine this condition from a strength-based perspective focusing on that family, recognizing they're dealing with unbelievable challenges, but there's still some great things going on there if we look for them. And then how do we use those great things as a way to, to, to help them, not do it for them, but to help them become more independent? That's the nuance and the subtlety of strength-based thinking um, that I believe can be very powerful. And again, I have to go back to the idea that teachers I believe that's why they went in. That's why teachers go into to teaching, to create, to to be an artist, to be a scientist, and to somehow figure out what what are the conditions. How do I change things around? And I'm only suggesting at this point that we begin to consider how do I change things around from a strength-based perspective, as opposed to how do I go in there and fix it and make it better for them. Yale. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. It, uh, that was really terrific. So this is this is a, I think, a really important book from a culture of dependency to a culture of success, focusing on what's right about America and the American people. And if there were ever a time when we need to be thinking at this kind of meta, thoughtful level, it feels like it now. Um, before we close, uh, I, to, uh, Two quick things occurred to me that felt like this makes this a critical time. One was the story this last week about the banks being able to appoint their own consultant investigators to look at their mm -hmm. mortgage fraud. And it just kind of, I kind of dropped out of my chair, right? Uh, that we would think that it, that would be, uh, that they would actually find culpability investigating themselves. And the second was having watched the presidential debates, realizing that the issues that I cared the most about didn't really get addressed. How important a period of time is this right now? Is it fair for me to be feeling like we're at a critical moment where we've really got to figure this out because our climate and our political and financial um, cultures are in, in tenuous positions? I believe that so much. Um, you know, every generation looks back and thinks, in some fashion, that uh, they were the, they were, you know, the, the things that are going on presently for them uh, are most important from a historical perspective. But when we consider um, what is happening now um, and what is going on, but then you add to that social media and the fact that you have 24/7 cable news, everything takes on a life of its own. Uh, when there's a, a, a tragedy at a particular school, that no longer is a tragedy. It becomes a, a, a it becomes an event that is universal. And when we take a look at what's going on um, with our kids, 
Um, it's no longer just a small neighborhood. It's, it's, it's universal. It becomes everyone is touched by it. And as a result, if we constantly focus in on, um, on the deficits and, and, and the horrible things taking place, we simply will begin to look more and more at, um, at whether it's the private sector or the public sector to do things for us. And therefore, the dependency state increases. And as a result of that, we lose more and more of our individual liberty. And more important, even more important than that, we lose who we are. We lose who we are. And um, I, think it's, I think it is so important now, particularly for teachers, to begin to, to realize that, that they have the opportunity not to lecture, not to dictate, not to become ideologues, but rather to recognize that the reason they went into education was because of the value that they hold for children regardless of their age. And that value now, I think, can be translated in recognizing that every kid, regardless of who they are and where they are, has unbelievable talents that need to be nurtured with skills and knowledge so that they become viable human beings and successful. And to me, uh, I agree very much we are at a very important time in our lives. I hope this isn't the last of our conversations. Thank you. Thanks, I appreciate Yale. it very much. Me too. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Yale Wishnick, From a Culture of Dependency to a Culture of Success. What a great conversation. And again, next week, maybe flipping the classroom, but then for sure educating for global competence. Take care, everybody. Have a great night or day, depending on where you are. Bye now.